Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. The chancers on the brink of backstopping reserves to hold every single bond till it finally meets hers and organize the banks under Washington's leaders. Yo, the statements are joint. Centralization Kickstarter, it's Operation Choke Point. Shout out to Nick Carter. I'm learning debates on for turning the states on. We're talking the bank run with Omid Malaykhan. Let's picture this. You think your money isn't sound? Bitcoin fixes this. Don't get it twisted around when the central bank mystic sets the printer to ballistic. Inflation's not the beginning, but it's where the fiat finishes. We're out here building a new future, yo. There's no cap to the number of sutures TradFi will need, so know that. Let me say it back for everybody in the chat. We need to be re-architecting trust in the system and taking it back. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital. We have a great show. Thank you for listening to Galaxy Brains. We're speaking with Omid Malekon, professor at Columbia Business School and longtime critic of the Federal Reserve about the banking system and the traditional financial system in general and what crypto means for it. We'll also check in with our friend Ben Metabibi from Galaxy Trading, as always, to talk markets and how the bank crisis is impacting markets. But before we get to all of that, I, ple- I need to remind you to please refer to the link to the disclaimer in the podcast notes and note that none of the information contained in this podcast represents an investment advice or an offer recommendation or solicitation by Galaxy Digital or any of its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Let's start the show. Let's go now to our friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading. As always, great to see you, my friend. Thanks for having me. So uh, a lot has happened Absolutely. since last week. We recorded last Wednesday, and um, obviously Silicon Valley Bank went under and was taken over after our recording. Yep. Um, Signature Bank uh, was taken over. Yep. Uh, reasons unclear. Um, and and Silvergate had previously uh, wound down. Yes. They weren't actually taken over or anything, but big fears in the banking industry from basically when we recorded last time yep. until mostly yesterday but and then you can now. add credit suisse onto it as of this morning what do they what do they say uh well one of their top investors which is uh i believe uh, uh a fund or somebody that's related to like the saudi arabian uh family one of their largest equity holders basically said they're not willing to to put in any more investment yes. or increase their 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 equity stake and that didn't provide much confidence uh and so what i'm guessing is happening is you're probably seeing like further deposit outflows from from credit suisse but you've had their credit default swaps like go crazy Got it. um and so now it's, it's spreading a little uh, bit oh, it hasn't I've, stopped I've, spreading yet i guess I've, Correct. So and, and and it went from you know just being a U.S. regional bank issue to now being a little bit more international in the sense that you know a large Swiss bank. Basically, now, every bank now is having to be re-underwritten by whoever well, it is well, does cor- that. Cor- correct. Yeah. And uh, right now it's the U.S. government, and so there's this huge like moral hazard. Like you know, is this what what you're supposed to be doing, which is guaranteeing all banks and bank deposits right. for everyone including you know the big guys like is right. that what you realistically need to have a fully functioning banking market now it's kind of what they're they've done kind it's of. kind of what they've done yeah. but it's it's such an interesting paradox where it's like okay you have inflation you're trying to fight on one hand and then you have a banking system that really and a bond market that really can't handle the the pace and the the height of, of the rate increases that are kind of required to get the inflation down right. or previously thought. 
And so it's a very interesting dynamic. And it's like, you know, I was talking a couple of weeks ago, I was like, we were talking about when the Fed's going to have to undo QE. Right. Um, or sorry, undo quantitative tightening. Right. And go the other way. Because we were like, okay, banks can't really buy. Because when we were talking about it weeks ago. Right. Uh, banks can't really buy because... Uh, you know they've already bought so much in their portfolios, and they're under underwater on on a, on a ton of them. The currency guys, uh, the guys that hedge currencies uh, to buy the bonds, the currency hedging costs were too high. Um, foreign real money had stopped buying, and so we we're like, okay, where's the marginal buyer? Treasury's going to come in if right. the, the central banks aren't buying anymore. Um, so anyway, it's like, you know, there, there's structural issues in the banking system that are basically telling you your monetary response isn't like isn't sufficient or is not complete right and 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 so the question is is the fed going to be like okay now that they have this facility and they have taken over a couple of the problematic banks and the other banks figure it out either they get bought or use the facility or whatever it may be is that enough to contain right, the... We get the, the, when we get through the immediate crisis, then what do they do, right? Because that's what a lot of the, the street has been even now, again, repricing their expectations on interest rate. Absolutely. It's moved right, last, to... last week, Jay Powell was uh, very strict and hawkish in yep. the Senate. Um, this, a full repricing of with even higher and lo for longer happened right after that. Now, since the collapses and the banking issues, it's going the other way. The street is expecting cuts, cuts, or even you know, even in the the question is for this next meeting, right? One higher of the for shorter, higher for shorter, or or less high for shorter. Yeah, <laughs> that um, is essentially what's the being big question on Wall Street yeah. this week has been: What is Jay Powell going to do? What next week? Exactly when he when the Fed announces a, a rate, whatever their rate decision is. It had been repriced after he spoke last week to like almost certainly fifty bip increase or, or close I was to like eighty percent probability. And now it's like I mean, GS says no increase. Other banks still say still fifty, like just as predictions. Yeah. Um, and some people I don't think, think any banks say fifty anymore. Briefly, some did over the weekend, maybe but, still. Um, but yeah, so now it's like maybe you know zero to flat. Some people are yeah. calling for a cut, I right? Mean, so it's, what it's gone do? the other way. In your mind, what what what's not like the prediction necessarily, but like walk me through the thinking here for the Fed because there's issues of credibility on the line as well. Yeah, well, their credibility is going to take a hit no matter what they do because he was hawkish, because and then the next day the, bank, the regional ago. banks, had yeah, problems. yeah. But it's also, I mean. He's got access to data and there's, you know, people are talking about this stuff and it's not like the first dollar got pulled like uh, on Thursday or Friday. Like, you know, right. people it's have been, known yeah. about this stuff. And it's also like, you know, uh, the Fed's a bank regulator. The FDIC is a bank regulator. Like it's clearly a failure uh, uh, by regulators to, to effectively monitor right. uh, banks. Uh, so it's a really tricky situation. So it's a credibility issue already is your point. It is, yeah. it is. But for him, it's like, He's got his mandates, right? The written ones and the unwritten ones. The written ones of full employment and price stability, and there's actually a, a weird third one. But his other one that is also super important is, you know, financial stability. Yeah. Right? That's not explicitly in his mandate. But, but obviously it matters. Obviously it matters. Yeah. And uh, to be honest, like, it might trump the others besides employment, to be yeah. honest. But financial stability, like, people need to have faith and confidence. In the system. In the system, in the market. And so if he genuinely thinks that's at risk here, um, then I think he's got a pause. And, and like, there's a genuine risk. I mean, the, you know, our, our CEO said this, you know, this morning. It's like 
if you're in any banking institution that isn't a U.S. systemically important bank, a GSIB, like what are you doing with your money? I mean, there's been huge flows out uh, of smaller uh, banks into, into just every person was calling, yeah. moving their money to the biggest bank they have access to. It was, it was kind Correct. of what we saw. That's what the you. Last well, it's seven what you days. have to do. There's really no option. I get it. The Fed's got a facility to do this, but again, they're only, you know, backstopping depositors. You yeah, you don't and, know how how yeah. How, Theoretically, if that would always be there. So the whole idea is you want to be in a too big to fail bank. Correct. You can be. Correct. And 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 it, you, you at this point, if you're you have money in an institution that isn't a too big to fail bank, you're just taking career risk, like unnecessary, like yeah. Um, uh, I, which is which. But I, the I, Fed, I mean, with this mm-hmm. backstop, with this facility, yeah. um, they are trying to signal the opposite of that. They're trying to say we, we're covering. You're safe. Well, the president well, here's, said this. Here's, president said yeah, on Monday the, morning. Effectively, though, it's like they're, they're lending versus like loans and, and assets, right? Um, and they're lending you more money than those things are, are worth because yeah. they're taking it at at par. But again, it do, it doesn't stem the fact that like you know equity holders and bondholders of these institutions that have to use the they facility could, that they, ultimately fail, like right. those are going to get wiped out. If and they like, fail, yeah, like yeah, they have. and it's also like it just it has a, it's a market confidence thing. It is. It's like these guys couldn't do banking one hundred and one. Yeah. Um. So like, why would you put money in guys that don't situation. do so banking one hundred and one? They say like raise until you break, raise until something raise breaks. Until you break. But this now, is, now, this is something you've been saying this though. Yeah. There are unintended things. Consequences. While it looks, we, we were saying. I mean, dude, Thorn, we have literally talked about how the bank balance sheets right. are insolvent. Right. Like on this podcast, right. we like weeks ago, we were like they've been buying these things yeah. and they have to pay out you right. know really high rates on on deposits. Um, you know, yeah, like structural issue here. Structural issue, and we've been talking about it in the context of the Fed's balance sheet as well as you know yes, other 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 banks. But you know, it's pretty obvious, and that's yeah. why we've been in the camp of like you know, eventually, you know, they're gonna have to slow down. QT is gonna have to you know roll off. So what um, do you think? Like, just I mean, I guess why not? You know, everyone on the street is trying to make a prediction here. What mm-hmm. do you think? A dovish hike of twenty five is that most likely? If I was them, I, I wouldn't hike at all. You'd pause. I'd pause. This is a big deal. Um. And I would just wait and see, just buy time. Yeah. The inflation data, like we just went through a really strong right. patch of CP- hot data. And we had CPI yesterday. CPI, you know, was relatively in Unchanged, line. right? Yeah. I mean, or, you know, it, it was it was an okay number. Nobody was really focused on it. We had PPI today right. that was also came in so re- retail sales as well that were, were more mixed. But we know the structural stories in the back half of the year um, suggest a slowing U.S. consumer Right. As a function of one, higher interest rates, you know, ballooning car payments, the reintroduction of, of, of student loan payments, you know, federal government student student loans, and also just, you know, the savings base like getting dwindled down in right. terms of, you know, people having spending more than they save and you know that just catching just up to them over the, time. The longer that goes. Yeah, yeah and yeah. then credit card balances have been rising at you know these high interest rates like that's going to eat mm-hmm. into spending etc. So there's so reasons. Yeah. There's reasons and you also had like weird like January seasonal effects and like you know adjustments to the data and stuff over the past couple months um, and you know one time you know, Social Security recipients got a raise recently. That was a huge one-time um, raise. Well, it's not one-time, but again, it's like one of those things right. that made the the data, you know, kind of s- seem artificially high, in my view, at least. So yeah. there's lots of things that the Fed can look at and be like encouraged by, 
and that would warrant uh, pausing yeah. of, of, of interest rate hikes. But the question now is, will they deliver on kind of the, the path that the market is suggesting, which is, you know, you know, more way more cuts over the next, you know, 12 to 18 months. Yep. We'll wait and find out. Bimnet, Abibi, our friend from Galaxy Trading. Thanks so much. Let's go now to our guest, Omid Malekhan, professor at Columbia University Business School. Great to see you, my friend. Great to be here. So, Omid, uh, you were called, what, hilarious but misguided by a former Fed chair. Why was that? Yes. Uh, <laughs> those of you who remember the Bernanke, whoever's old enough, in 2010, <laughs> I published a cartoon on YouTube called Quantitative Easing Explained uh, that, as you could imagine, was critical and satirical and humorous yes and it went viral um and uh for like 15 minutes i was perhaps the most famous person on the internet <laughs> uh and then uh chairman bernanke mentioned it in his memoir and he called you he said the video was hilarious but misguided yes which i think is the ultimate street cred to work in crypto <laughs> so what was your criticism you're so you're a fed critic you have been a long time let, let lay it out for us yeah, there's actually some things, obviously, my thinking on thing, plan, uh, policies like QE has evolved in the last 13 years or whatever. But my general criticism is that the financial system is no longer allowed to reset. So whether we're talking about LTCM, we're talking about the 2008 crisis, 2020, what's happening today is that every time it looks like natural market forces are going to punish some people and some companies for no other reason than they made bad decisions, the government steps in, mostly involving some kind of money printing and says, well, this is bad for society, it's bad for Main Street, and they intervene. But as with anything else in life, if you don't have those natural system uh, resets, then the system just becomes more and more fragile. Yeah, and it grows and grows. So when it, the next one, like the, the crises will seem to get bigger and bigger, right? Exactly. And, yeah. and it's almost like the threshold by which everything breaks down just goes higher and higher. So um, let's just, of course, there's a lot of relevant things happening in the news um, when we have this banking crisis now. I guess I'm going to colloquially call it the regional banking crisis. You know, I don't think that sums up the entire thing at all. But Right, our our listeners will know that Silicon Valley Bank was uh, uh, went became insolvent and was seized after a bank run, and then over the weekend, the NYDFS took over Signature Bank. Um, it's very unclear why Signature Bank. They actually DFS just said that it was basically because they didn't provide uh, good data. I know, which is really that is a strange reason, but. Regardless, like there's there there was a I think they said at least 17 or 18 billion had been pulled out of that bank all last week. So there's sort of this bank run problem happening, and the Fed has stepped in with the FDIC and this sort of what did they what do they do? To what is this backstop like that they've they're trying to underwrite the whole banking system here? Yes. So effectively, they've guaranteed all bank deposits because in the bigger banks, everybody they're too big to fail, right? So if you have money at J.P. Morgan, you don't worry about it. You used to maybe worry about it at regional banks, which is why people were fleeing a bank like SVB. But uh, the fancy backstop that they announced is that the problem so far is that these banks have safe assets like treasuries and agencies on their um, balance sheets that have depreciated in price. Right. Because interest rates have gone up. If they can hold them through maturity, they'll pay out, pay back exactly. out. Yeah. Right. But they can't because depositors are fleeing. So the Fed has announced a facility where the banks could go and 
uh, borrow money against that debt at par. Right. So, you know, imagine if you could take your Bitcoin that you bought a year and a half ago to the Fed and borrow against it as if it was 60,000, <laughs> not 25,000. Yeah, it's the it's because these are these are um, many of them are government backed securities, right? So they're yes. they're guaranteed in this at least as far as the Fed's concerned to pay out if they can get there. Right. But if you have to sell them now, you take a big haircut and realize loss is the idea. That's the idea. And it'll be interesting to see how big it gets because I wouldn't be surprised if there are some people out there who don't even have the impairment issue, but they're like, oh, I can borrow at par for something worth 80 cents. That's not a bad deal. <laughs> it's like leverage. Right. Yeah. But the, the, the Isn't that effectively quantitative easing, by the way? I mean, don't they create yes. money by doing that? Yes, they expand their balance sheet. Uh, but if they if they lend out at uh, a value higher than the market values these securities, like that's net additional money in the system. That's right. right. Yeah. So that's counteractive to the Fed's goals currently, right? Right. Which is a tightening regime. Yes. Now, I would not be surprised as they have done in situations like this in the past where they come out and say, even though there are now billions or hundreds of billions of dollars that didn't exist before, we're not printing money and it's not QE. Yeah. We're not going to get Neil Kashkari on 60 Minutes with laser eyes, like or whatever. <laughs> what do you say? Like, yeah, we just printed the, we just updated the spreadsheet. Remember that uh, COVID era interview? I, I do. I also, I'm old enough to remember speaking of 60 Minutes and my friend the Bernanke. He went on 60 Minutes. I think it was in 08 to explain what the Fed was doing, and he tried to explain QE. And then the interviewer said, "So you're printing money?" And he said, "Effectively, yes." <laughs> One year later, he went back on 60 Minutes and tried to argue that the same exact policy that now QE2 was not printing money. <laughs> this is that, uh, that perpetual like self, um, self-awareness self that the Fed occasionally has and then doesn't have and is always forced to reckon with. That's right. Do we literally print money? They get asked this question every single time, and they're all over the place on that answer. Yeah, and it begs the question of how much has their credibility slipped? From I think crisis to crisis. So that's the big question on Wall Street right now is what will they do next week when there's when they will announce their updated interest rate policy. And I think after Jay Powell had appeared before Congress last week, the market was repricing in higher for longer even more. Now a lot of the market is pricing in like less high for less long basically. What do you think? I mean, the, the, basically, as far as I understand the possibilities, there's the 50 bips hike, which would be the hawkish hike from last week. There's a 25, a, a reduction in the magnitude of the increase. So a 25 bips hike would, they're calling a dovish hike, right? There's doing nothing, a pause, which is what a lot of people say could happen because of the banking system issues. Um, or they could cut. Like, where, where, what do you think is most likely here? <laughs> so I'm not a Fed expert. I know. But I am an expert of human nature and financial history. And I think when you go down the path of bailouts and market intervention, which we've been on for a very long time, the market will always call your bluff. So it almost doesn't matter what they're going to say or do to me because – we just had a massive bond bubble that the Fed helped create. And then we also had the fastest rate hikes in modern history deflate that bubble. That means there are going to be a lot of problems in the financial system. And the market is going to go to that dangerous, scary place like we did a week ago with the regional banks, where either they're going to force the Fed's hand to do more, or the Fed's going to step back and say no. In order to prevent even further moral hazard, we're just going to let the chips fall where they may. 
they kind of uh, I see they're going to hunt. The market's going to stop hunt the Fed, basically. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about crypto. You are you're you're the crypto professor at Columbia Business School, right? Is that a fair statement? That's um, right. He's also at- Omid has written a great book, by the way, which we've had on our which is over his shoulder, rearchitecting trust. We've actually had in our studio, I think, the entirety of us doing the show. How does crypto play in here? What it, does it tell us something about crypto or as an alternative? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so if you're talking about crypto being Bitcoin, then I've always thought of Bitcoin as an opt-out mechanism. That there are these increasingly complex, opaque machinations within the fiat system. And with every passing crisis, things just get more complex and in many ways more opaque. And the beauty of Bitcoin is that for the first time ever, you now have a censorship-resistant digital asset that is universally uh, ownable and accessible. So anybody who's worried and unhappy about the machinations could just be like, you know what? I'm going to opt out of here for a while. Um, then there are these interesting questions about these bank runs and bank problems. What do they teach us about DeFi? Right? What does the dollar banking system teach us about stable coins? What do we learn from the fact that even USDC momentarily depegged this weekend? So if nothing else, it's a great teaching moment. I'm always uh, happy when crisis happened during the semester because we can talk about it with the students. But I think when we come out of the other side of this, a lot of the arguments for crypto that people like you, people like me have been making for a long time are going to have more and more real world examples. Yep. Yeah, I think it's very, I mean, Chancellor on the brink of second bailout for banks is what Satoshi wrote in the Genesis block. Um, that was 2009, January 3rd, 2009, that headline in the London Times. Um, Fed on brink of bailout of all regional banks. I mean, it's basically what just happened. It's the <laughs> That's right. Very similar situation. Like, I mean, you know, obviously if we're getting to the weeds, there, there are plenty of differences, right? But like, I mean, at, at a core level, it's 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 it seems like the moment, it seems like the reason Bitcoin was literally created. That's right. And I think people somewhat misunderstand. This is when people assume that Bitcoin's political, which to some people it is. It's actually not to me. Yeah. Right? To me, it's always been about the infrastructure that makes it possible, along with DeFi and stablecoins and everything else. And talk about a teaching moment, right? Like, why, what was one of the reasons why people fleed all these banks? Or why today there are very open questions as to like, what happened to Signature Bank? Right? right. We still don't know. The NYDFS have not put out a spreadsheet that says, here's what we saw and why we did what we did. And I doubt such a spreadsheet exists. To those of us who live in the world of DeFi, these problems don't happen, right? What are Aave's assets and liabilities? I can pull out my phone and tell you exactly what they are. So it's ironic to me that whereas crypto has this reputation for being risky and dangerous, when you look at the opacity and the inefficiencies of the existing banking system, it's far worse. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. And that is part of the different trust assumptions that are at play, right? There's a lot of wizardry and magic in central banking and the banking (laughs) system that you have to actually believe in. I mean, even the concept of fiat currency not backed by something is it's magic. They're they're actually asking us to believe that they're like they're they're a wizard and we're not supposed to look behind the curtain, right? Because if we do, we're not gonna like what we see most of the time. That's right. I mean it's even worse. Fiat currency is backed by something. It's backed by the faith and the credit of the government that issues it. And I'm actually if anybody reads the book, I'm not one of these people who thinks that 
fiat currency is all bad. Right. There are significant problems with any kind of hard money, whether we're talking about Bitcoin and gold. And there's a reason why uh, almost every country on earth evolved to a fiat model. But perhaps the pendulum has swung too far in the other direction because it was one thing to have fiat money 50 years ago where there was a financial system built on top that was allowed to operate it. But it's like with every passing crisis, central banks like the Fed just assume more control and responsibility of the economy. Right. Right. Gets more and more centralized. Yeah. And then the fact that there is another crisis in the first place makes people wonder, Maybe that wizard doesn't know what they're doing. That's, I think, the credibility hit to the Fed here is like, I mean, the, the chairman of the Fed was at Congress last week saying the system is resilient. And by the way, I'm super hawkish. And then like the next day, the system was not resilient. And it's like, forget the fact that like that may have to alter your rate hike like path. How, did you not know that it wasn't as resilient as you seemed to let on? And of course, I, I don't know. I mean, in one hand, it's got a terrible job because, I mean, if he comes out and says that it is unstable or if they had said inflation could happen, they almost certainly would have. Right. <laughs> right. So you kind of like the banking system, like that faith, you kind of have to lie. I mean, if you're in a bank that could go insolvent, if there's a bank run, you have to lie the entire – you have to say we're totally fine. That's all you can say. I believe the CEO – If you say we're not fine, then you immediately will become not fine. The CEO of Credit Suisse was at a conference today saying that the bank is just fine as this its CDS explodes to ever higher values. Could so. be true until it's not true, basically. It's That's a, right. It's like the turkey's life. You know that chart? Uh, that if you, oh, did, yeah. if you did TA on a turkey's life, it would look like up only until one day it's completely – until Thanksgiving. <laughs> um, I want to ask you about um, DeFi a little bit. I know uh, you're, you're – um, you, one of the things that I thought was really interesting that you did that you, I think you were pretty well known for was after um, FinCEN uh, or OFAC sanctioned Tornado Cash last summer um, in I think about August of 2022, if I recall correctly, maybe early August, um, they put an Ethereum smart contract on the SDN list, which is the OFAC sanctioned specially designated nationals list, effectively making it illegal for any American to touch it. Right. Um, but you did touch it after that. What did you do? Uh, I did as a form of political protest because I do believe that privacy is a fundamental right. And I think this argument that's been gaining traction that we should not have financial privacy because, you know, bad people do bad things. Yeah. It's gone too far. So um, I after the sanctions were passed, I intentionally used Tornado Cash to privately donate ETH to both Planned Parenthood and a uh, secret group of Russians who help Ukrainians. And then, of course, I doxed myself on Twitter because it was meant as a form of protest. Correct. Um, yeah, very, very powerful stuff. I think they've walked back the sanctions on the software a little bit. Um, but but so it wouldn't surprise me if they still haven't. But did have you heard... Did anyone come after you for this? I mean, no one from the government has come after me. Interestingly enough, because I knew I was going to dox myself, I <laughs> used coins that I withdrew from Coinbase to do this. And some point, like a week later, I got an email from Coinbase, which made me realize that the exchanges also track your coins after you withdraw them. That's interesting. Um, which I'm very sympathetic to regulated entities like Coinbase. They have to play by the rules. Totally. But 
I've always felt like crypto was eventually going to run headlong into the way our traditional financial system is increasingly deputized to do what government officials want to do, even when they're legal things that they want to not happen. And this uh, tornado cash business was a perfect example of that. Let's talk about stable coins. You mentioned this before. Obviously, a huge and fascinating part of the crypto world. In some ways, I think to most, to many policymakers um, in governments and in legislatures and at regulatory agencies, even maybe the most interesting, per, on one hand, maybe has the most promise. On the other hand, I think a lot of the systemic risk fears actually emanate from the stablecoin world because it is this sort of well, what is in your mind? What is this? How do you think of a stablecoin? Where does this fit in as a financial product? Not even inside crypto, just broadly. What is the story of stables in your mind? I think stablecoins are the safest payment instrument ever invented. That's not cash, and I don't mean that to be hyperbolic. I think like we all make payments using a claim on a reserve. That's your checking account. That's Venmo. That's a Starbucks gift card, and on and on, um, and. This, by the way, has been going on for like 500 years. The, the original paper money, the banknote, was invented as a claim on gold coins kept by a money changer in Europe or China. So the challenge has always been if you want these things to be safe, which I do and you do and everybody does, you have to make sure that the assets match the liabilities. With any kind of traditional payment instrument, that means the regulator has to look at both sides of the balance sheet, right? What are PayPal's liabilities? Those are our account balances in PayPal and Venmo. And then what are the assets? That's the money it keeps at banks or in treasuries. With stable coins, 50% of the balance sheet is visible on chain. Like even the much maligned Tether, I can go to CoinGecko right now and tell you exactly what their liabilities are in a way that I promise you no regulator in America could ever do for Venmo. So on the one hand, they're safe much safer than what came before. And some inherent transparency there. Yes. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, they're far more efficient. They're universally accessible in ways that Venmo Global are not. And, yeah. Programmable, you can do atomic swaps with them. So it's not surprising to me that they are the killer app of blockchain in some ways so far. Um, and to the extent that almost all the stable coins are dollar stable coins, they also create demand for US treasuries in a, from places where they didn't exist before. And we're, we've been wondering, uh, the world central banks have been buying fewer treasuries. There's many, like the, the Saudis are signaling that they may start pricing 25% of their oil exports in Yuan. Um, the US needs demand for treasuries. That's right. We can't just have only the Fed buying treasuries. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think all the controversy around stable coins to put it politely, particularly in Washington, is very misplaced. I understand why Bitcoin as an opt-out mechanism from the dollar and the Fed and the whole shebang might cause agita for them. But something like a USDC should not. They should love products yeah. like that. So will they? Do you think they're going to come around? What do we need for that to happen? I think more people need to educate people in Congress that this is potentially a trillion dollar source of demand for treasuries that wouldn't exist otherwise. Uh, and as far as I know, no legislature in history has ever said no to cheaper funding for their spending programs. So that will happen. But I think the banking system is going to throw a fit. Let's unpack that. We talked about this a little before we started recording, but um, 
doesn't that look like uh, – where's all the money going right now? It's going from everyone sending it to the best, biggest bank that they can access, right? Because it's safer. It's too big to fail. It's, you know, If you can get into a GSIB, that's what we've been seeing. I mean you're seeing it across all the regional banks, right? Right. Well, so the money is going to go to the safest place in a crisis. What happens if the safest place is a like fully reserved depository, like a, like a stable coin, or even like what Custodia Bank was going to do? Yeah. So then the depositors are safer, and they're better off. Um, but then the banks that are taking more risk with their balance sheet, not necessarily because they're doing anything irresponsible. It's just the nature of full banking is that you give mortgages and you issue credit cards and construction loans and lines of credit. And the interesting thing about the design of our financial system up until recently is that users didn't have a choice. Right? Like, I want a checking account just so I can pay my bills, but I have to effectively lend, moral, lend my money to a bank who will then relend it to somebody else. Yep. But something like a narrow bank model or a stable coin gives users a safer option. But that makes the fractional reserved banking system more dangerous. Theoretically, well, if there's if a, that option is there, if that option's there, and there's suddenly a flight of capital, which, by the way, some versions of it already exist. Like a lot of people in the last week, I'm sure, have been transferring money from their bank account to a money market fund. True, right? A money market fund is similar. Competes with bank for with uh, banks for deposits, right? Basically, and the one limitation of money market funds is you can't use it to make payments. I can't send you my shares of it, right? But with a stable coin, I can same exact design. So in some ways, it's like a killer product as far as many end users are concerned. But it does mean that it doesn't mean that all the money is going to leave the banking system. It just means that banks are going to have to pay more interest to their depositors to attract that capital back. And if but this is where it helps centralize the banking system probably too even further, right? Because yet JP is going to have a way to fill their cough, like run their bank. But like, how far down the list of Banks, is that true for? Mm, no. With with incrementally more competition from like a new stablecoin. That's a great point. I mean, and, and and I think if you look at the number of banks in America, you know, it was like 10,000 and 2,000 in the year 2000, and now it's like 4,200. And it's probably about to go down to like 3,500. Yeah. It, over yeah. the next few years. Right. So like, is that a risk? Or what, what's the outcome of that in your mind? Is a, as a, you know, especially as, you know, let's say for privacy, which we've talked about or whatever, like how... how do we want a more decentralized banking system? For leaving crypto even aside, the, the, the traditional system, while it's still here, is it better if it's more localized or is it worse? I mean, I don't like. No, it, it's absolutely much better. Like this idea that we actually, by law now, create financial institutions that are too big to fail is dangerous. To me, nothing should be too big to fail. Right. And we know this from crypto. We want the system to be as diffuse, distributed, and decentralized as possible. Not for any political reason, because it's safer and more resilient that way. Yeah, I mean, that's that's how the internet was actually built, right? It was actually so that we could message each other in a nuclear, uh, like, apocalypse. I think that's why it was made distributed in the first place. Oh, I didn't know that. That's why DAR uh, Ar ARPANET, it was called. That's right. what it was. It was, a, it was like a military technology, right? Huh. Widely dis distributed. Do you think... Um, you know, we we didn't talk about this really, but like FTX and the blowups in crypto, which obviously, um, aside from like you know on-chain cyber attacks, you know, people putting out smart um, contracts that end up having exploitable bugs. Aside from that, all of the blowups are classic centralized blowups. They're not 
it wasn't the blockchain that was indicted. But how hard is it to tell that story, right? I mean, it's hard, particularly because of how high of a profile FTX had. But I've always been of the belief that at the end of the day, the best argument does win out. And if you look at financial history, which I try to do in the book, actually, yeah. like I try to present this not as a story of like crypto is going to be this shocking revolutionary thing that's going to tear down everything that came before, but that if you look at the values that the financial system has wanted for as long as it's existed, sometimes for thousands of years, crypto is in some ways the natural evolution of it because you end up with a more trustworthy system that's also more convenient and has better features. How, how much are the students at uh, Columbia, um, how bullish are they on the future of this? I mean, let me put this, the youth, I, we had a joke, it was like, you know, we just got to get these, not on even on finance or crypto, but pretty much on anything. There's a, we have the oldest leaders in like American history right, right. now, right? And we're sort of like, when's the next generation going to step up? How does your um, interactions with your students at Columbia make you feel about the future? I think Elizabeth Warren should come spend a couple of hours on campus and then she would change her mind. Because the inevitability of all of this to them is even surprising to me, not a question. So, so a lot of people have asked me like, oh, did class attendance go down this semester versus last semester or a year ago, you know, pre-FDX when prices were flying up? Class attendance went up because a lot of the students who come in, in part because they're the youth, also, it's a business school. You get people who are ambitious about their career and want to be on the cutting edge. To them, they're like, of course, this is some part of the future. They might not, a lot of them don't agree with me on a lot of what I say, sure. but they don't dismiss it outright. And whether we're talking about Bitcoin, banking, you know, like there are students studying marketing who are fascinated by what you can do with NFTs for loyalty. Yep. So the good news is there is an inevitability as that generation slowly takes over. Love to hear that. Um, Omid Malekan, Columbia University professor, author of the book, Rearchitecting Trust. We're going to drop in the show notes a link to a free sample from that book. So check it out. Thank you, my friend, so much for coming on Galaxy Brains. Thanks for having me. That's it for Galaxy Brains this week. Thank you for listening. Thank you to our guests, Omid Malekan from Columbia Business School and Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading as always. Look, you made it to the end of the podcast, but more importantly, you made it to the end of the week. It's been a wild one in markets and we will see you next Friday. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To follow Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email, read our content at galaxy.com research, and follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. See you next week.